0: Amen. Let's get our Bibles out open to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Page 1299. We'll spend a few moments tonight before our business meeting in Romans chapter 6. I want to talk to you a little bit about being unshackled. I think... If we're honest, we would say that there's a lot of confusion today in, with regards to Christianity, with regards to the Word of God, with regards to anything that relates to um, Christ, uh, church. I mean, just everything is, is seems like it's up for debate these days. And part of the problem is, is that if you listen to... Uh, the conversations that are out there about God and Christianity what's puzzling is that all of these people that claim to believe the same thing, believe in the same God and believe the same Bible have these radically different ideas about how that works out in in people's lives like what that looks like or you know what what is that? do to somebody when they become a Christian or and. I've been thinking about this for several weeks, it was really pressing on my mind when I was in Brazil, because I was thinking about. All of the reasons why I. I just feel so alive when I'm. Presenting with the opportunity to share the gospel with a group of people that has never heard it before. It's this moment where you you just feel like it's the greatest opportunity in the entire world. And one of the things that makes it so phenomenal is is that I'm not not having to hurdle over any crazy presuppositions. I'm not having to sort of fit the gospel into their worldview or into these ideas that they already have, into these Bible-belt cultural Christianity things that already exist in their mind. I'm just free to say, here's what the Bible says. And the shocking thing about it is, is that. If I were to ask you the question tonight. Is the Bible clear? I mean, is is it hard to understand or does God sort of beat around the bush or is it just Right there. I mean, that's what it says just in plain language. And yet we have such a hard time just coming before the word of God, pushing aside all the things that we think, all the things that we 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 have heard. I just forget all that and just read a passage of Scripture and go, what does this say? And then respond to exactly what it says. Don't make excuses. Don't beat around the bush. Don't try to negotiate with God. Just respond. So here's a passage of Scripture that goes deep into my heart with regards to this issue. I'm not going to try to convince you of anything tonight. I'm just simply going to Allow this passage of Scripture to speak to your heart, and then you can do with it as you please. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know? that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether to sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the Weakness of your flesh for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things in which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we just come before your word and Lord, we just pray that you'll help us tonight. To. Push aside all of the things that. Would strive to hinder our understanding of the clarity with which you have just spoken to us. And Lord, maybe in the wordiness of the Apostle Paul's language, we might struggle to sort out the simplicity of what you have to say, but God, we ask that through the power of your Spirit, you'd help us now to just peer clearly and deeply into your Word. We ask for ears to hear and hearts to receive that we might glorify you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the greatest ways to know that Christianity is the only true religion, if you will, the only true opportunity that a person has to have a relationship with God. If someone who were to come to you and they would have said, well, how do you know that the Bible is true? How do you know that Christianity is the uh, is the the way? I mean, why? How do you know it's not Buddhism or Islam or you name it, all the other different things that are out there? Well, you could go into some deep apologetic conversation with them and that may be fruitful and productive, or you might just say something to them like, well, for one thing, no one's counterfeiting Islam. No one's counterfeiting Buddhism. No one's countering counterfeiting uh, the, the Mormon religion. No one's... I mean, they just are what they are. But yet in Christianity... The, the powers of darkness are ever at work, maybe putting their best foot forward at working to counterfeit Christianity, to present a, a form of belief, a doctrine that appears to be Christian, that claims to be Christian, but yet lacks the power thereof. Many of the religions that I just named that you find aren't counterfeiting are actually born out of it a counterfeit version of Christianity. Many people that will come to your door and are part of a cult will try to tell you that they are Christians and that they do believe in Jesus and the same Bible that you believe in, but in fact they don't. And so the question is why is there why are why are the powers of darkness so persistent in counterfeiting Christianity and not all the other world religions? Because it ought to tell us something about uh, that. You see, the only thing that's ever counterfeited is something that's of value. You counterfeit something that's real. You don't counterfeit something that's worthless or counterfeit something that's fake or false. You counterfeit something because it has great value. Now, let me give you three characteristics of a counterfeit before I show you how this passage of Scripture breaks down all the counterfeit Christianity around us. Three characteristics of a counterfeit. First thing about a counterfeit you need to know is that having a counterfeit reduces your desire for the real thing. So what the enemy wants to do is he wants to present a version of Christianity that doesn't have the power to save you that doesn't have the power to transform you but that looks feels smells and and operates similar to the real thing because if you if he can get you to grab hold of this counterfeit you won't seek after the real thing because you'll think that you've got something that's just as good something that works just as well and so if you have a pocket full of counterfeit $20 bills and those counterfeit $20 bills work like a charm every time you go in a store and you go to pay something and you put down a counterfeit $20 bill. As a matter of fact, if you have a 55-gallon drum filled with counterfeit $20 bills that work every time you use them, here's what's going to happen. You're going to quit going to work. Because why would you work for the real thing if you have a counterfeit? The only reason why you're going to work is because you're either afraid the counterfeit's not going to work. Or you can look at the counterfeit and tell that it's really counterfeit. But see, when you have a good counterfeit, it reduces your desire for the real thing. The second thing a counterfeit does is it, it appears to add value to your life. You see, it's not real, and so the reason why we want a fake thing, a fake designer thing, a fake thing that that looks just like the thing that costs ten times the amount of money is because the appearance is, is that it's added value to our life. In essence, it really hasn't because it's just a piece of junk that costs a few dollars just like any other piece of junk, but it mimics something that's of great value. And so the person who possesses the counterfeit not only has a lessened desire for the authentic thing, but feels good about themselves. Feels kind of good. Because they're thinking that maybe some people are thinking that this is real. And what if? What about a person who has a counterfeit who is deceived into believing that it's real? Oh, they really think that it's adding value to their life. But in fact, it really isn't because it's not real. And so with, with a, a counterfeit Christianity... You're going to have a lessened desire for the real thing. You're going to have this deceptive appearance that it's added value to your life. And thirdly, a counterfeit is hard, hard, hard to leave behind. Oh, my goodness. It's hard to leave behind. Let me tell you something. You're working through your 55-gallon drum of counterfeit $20 bills. And man, I mean, you're passing those things off. And nobody ever knows the difference. And you're just going and going and going. But... Everything's great until one thing. Not when you get caught. When the barrel gets empty. You see, because, uh oh. You see, you've been coasting along. You've been just riding high on this, on this sort of free ride, and then all of a sudden that you, they run out, and you realize that in order to, Attain the real thing. You, you've got to, you've got to scratch. You've got to work. I mean, things are going to change. You can't just, you know, keep going along. And then when you go back to work, the whole time you're at work, you're dreaming about the days when that barrel was full. Because life was good. It was easy. You were just in cruise control. You didn't have to do anything. Well, that's the appeal of counterfeit Christianity. It draws people in. And, you know, it it preys on their human wisdom and logic and on their cultural sort of uh, thoughts about things. And it, it just muddles all sorts of things together. But the, 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 the problem is, is that it negates such a gigantic portion of the Bible that there's so many things that can't be said. Either they have to be twisted out of uh, context or you can't even say them at all. Boy, and nowhere is that more true than in the book of Romans. Now uh, before I jump into this passage, is there evidence in Scripture that Christianity has always been a target of counterfeit counterfeiting? Is it always been the uh, the desire and the mode and the Goal of the enemy to counterfeit what's real. How did all this mess start back in Genesis chapter 3? The Bible says that the serpent said to the woman, Well, you will not surely die, for God knows that in that the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. From the very beginning, it was you can be a counterfeit God. I mean, obviously, Eve couldn't be God. And you know what? The serpent didn't say Eve could be God. Eve said, the serpent said, Eve, you can be like God. You you can be counterfeit. Then we get to the New Testament and we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, the Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. Now, that's that's pretty straightforward. I mean, that's just about as clear as it can be. But he goes on, he gives us more details. He says, but many are going to say in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Now, these aren't make believe things. These aren't things that these people imagine that they did. They're standing before the one they have just referred to as Lord, Lord. So I'm pretty confident that these are things that they actually did. In other words, I'm pretty confident that these people are in the same category as Judas Iscariot who cast out demons and was yet unsaved. Counterfeits. Hey, wait! we did all these things. We did all the things that made us look authentic. We did all the all the things that 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 we thought made us the genuine article. And Jesus says, no, no, then I will declare to them. I never knew you depart from me. You practice lawlessness. See, you're a counterfeit. You're not real. So understand that just because something is supernatural doesn't mean it's of God. You know, that, that's one of the, one of the little nuances that, that will come out of what I'm gonna to say tonight. Is that a lot of times today we see something and we can't really explain it, like we don't really know, uh, how that happened, and we just automatically assume that it's of God. As if God's the only one that does supernatural things. In other words, think about how prevalent it is today for someone who says they're a Christian to just attribute any supernatural thing that happens around them to God. How do you know that? Why do we do that? You know why we do that? Because we're too lazy to read, discern, and understand the Scripture. And since we don't know the Scripture, we can't verify what is God and not God. We just sort of say, well, yeah, God did that. How do you know God did that? What are you basing that presupposition on? Here's a lot of people who did a lot of supernatural things, and Jesus said they were working lawlessness. So I wonder how many things the enemy is doing in working lawlessness that people who claim to know Christ are giving God credit for. So when we get to Romans chapter 6, what Paul's doing, he's talking to the church at Rome, and he's... He's teaching the church at Rome this gigantic, beautiful, unbelievable reality of justification. But basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to get them to understand that they're justified, they're they're made right, they're standing before God as right before God is by faith alone. That that you don't work your way into a right standing before God. That's that's where he's uh, pushing when we get to the latter part of Romans chapter 6. And he's trying to get them to understand that salvation is such an extraordinary act of God that when a person comes to faith in Christ, they no longer need rules and regulations to cause them to behave. You see, that's why he starts out and he says, Well, what then? Shall we just sin because we're not under the law but under grace? That's why he's saying that. He's responding to their understanding that he's that they're they're saying, Paul, you can't, hold on a second, you can't say that. You you can't just you can't just say that that our justification is based on faith alone, that we through faith in Christ are made right with God. And that rightness with God is an irrevocable standing before him. If you do that, people are going to go crazy. I mean, there's a lot of people that have listened to me preach through the book of Galatians that still are struggling with this. They struggle. They're afraid of grace. Now, there's a lot of us that make great strides over the last 24 weeks. But is that what happens? If you, just, if you just tell somebody that by faith you were once and for all irrevocably justified, made right with God. Is there really a fear that they're going to go out there and act a fool? Whose fear is that? God doesn't seem to be afraid of it is all I'm saying, because the Bible says, well, well what then? So we just sin it up because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Certainly not, he says. So he's he's getting them to understand that. If a person is genuinely Saved. You don't have to run chasing them around all the time and like, you know, scolding them and, and reminding them of all the things they ought not be doing. You don't have to treat them like they're the same as they were before. Look at what he says. Look at verse 17 and 18. Really the, the thrust of this whole passage is in 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. But God be thanked that you were slaves of sin; yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Here is what I want you to do: if you write in your Bible, or maybe if God saved you in this moment, now you are going to start writing in your Bible. Then what you should do is you should underline, highlight, put a giant star over the two words "you were." Like somewhere down the line, you are going to have a uh, you are going to have this conversation with somebody about salvation. And they're going to say to you, well, I don't know. You know, what I mean, I signed a card. I joined a church. I, You know, you're going to be talking to somebody that you're sure is lost. And they're going to say, but well, why are you telling me all this? When I was 13, I went to summer camp and, and I got saved. And you're thinking, well, I've known you for 20 years. And there's nothing about your life that would make me think that you were saved in any way, shape or form. And they're going, but I am. I remember. I'm sure I'm still on the roll somewhere. You go immediately to this verse. Because you've already highlighted and underlined it and put a giant star over it. And you you say, now, let's look at Romans 6, 17. The Bible says that, thanks be to God, that you were slaves of sin. You were. Now, look at the next verse. Look at verse 18. But having been set free, you became. So now we've underlined and highlighted and put a star over. You were and then you became. So you were something, but then you became something else. So if you don't know anything else... I mean, if you have a third grade education. You can understand that the Bible is simply saying you were this and you became this. I mean, I don't know how. More simple, God can make it. You were something and you became something. So now all we have to do is figure out what you were and what you became. And we've got this thing licked. Right. Okay. You see, the, the reality that if you're what you've always been, you're not a Christian, is gone today. I mean, the, the sheer magnitude and multitude of people who will, I don't know how genuinely they're, they believe this, but they certainly are compelling and resistant when I'm talking to them. They will look me straight in the eye and they'll say, I know I'm saved. And I'm thinking. On what do you base that knowledge? I mean, please help me to understand where are you getting this information? Because you sure look to me like you've always been. I mean, I've known you a long time. Did, weren't we, didn't we go to school together? Haven't, had, didn't we, didn't, didn't we used to hang out before I became a Christian? I knew you then and I know you now and you look the same to me. It doesn't appear that you were something, you became something else. It just doesn't. So help me here. And then of course, here comes this, you know, humanistic reasoning. Well, you know, I'm, I just sort of, uh, you know, lost my way. I mean, I may, I've just kind of drifted over here and I've just done this and I've just done that. Okay, now all that sounds great. Except for what does this say? That's all I care about. I don't care what sounds great. I just want to know what does this say? You were something and you became something else. So what were you? You were a slave of sin. Okay, I got that. I got that. That makes sense to me. I knew you back then. I knew me back then. I mean, if you knew me before I got saved, no discussion, no question, not even a—you're not even going to doubt for a second. Tony Carnes was a slave of sin. End of story. Period. Simple. Case closed verse eighteen but you became a slave of righteousness now again i'm not I'm not a rocket scientist I mean I'm trying to look at this like I'm thinking okay, I got a third grade education i mean I'm talking to people who are illiterate and they're standing under a mango tree and I'm thinking to myself, can you understand that a slave of sin And a slave of righteousness could not look the same way. I mean, that's impossible. Who would ever dream up some argument to try to convince anyone that you could actually be a slave of sin and then a slave of righteousness, but no one could tell the difference. That's absurd. It's utterly absurd. But boy, we are working hard at that, aren't we? I mean, we've got all sorts of uh, ideas and reasons. And, you know, where you, you hear tons of this is when you, you, you listen to people give their testimony. You know, a testimony is not that difficult. It's here was my life before Christ. Here's my conversion story. And here's my life after Christ. But when I hear a testimony and it's all jumbled around and it's it's there's no clear delineation of where these three things, where the old person and the new person intersected in this transformational moment. And it just gets all mixed around. And so somebody who was an old person, but then they became a new person. But then it was somewhere way down the line over here that they actually began to look like a new person or act like a new person or How Well, well, where is that? Are you saying that a slave of sin looks just like a slave of righteousness? Because I don't think that's possible. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think that's possible. In fact, that's not being honest with you. I'm going to be honest with you. That's not possible. In my opinion... The far and away number one reason why so many people live inferior lives in Christ is because they have an inferior understanding of the gospel and salvation. That what I'm telling you tonight is just information they just don't have. They just don't understand it. They just don't... The reason why there's so many counterfeits mingled in. The reason why the wheat and the tares are so jumbled together is because the gospel gets jumbled together. The clarity of what God says gets jumbled together. The enemy has been very successful at mixing all these things around. So let me just tell you two things about this passage of Scripture and we'll be done. The first thing you've got to take away from this passage of Scripture is there's this change, okay? But what is the change? The first change is there's a change of ownership. Now, I want you to look back down at this section, 15 through 23. You've already um, put some kind of underline or something around. You were in verse 17 and you became in verse 18. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to maybe box in or put a triangle or put some other different shape around everywhere in, in your Bible where you see the word slave, Now, if you have a translation that says servant, that's fine. You're just going to circle servant. So in verse 16, do you not know that you present yourself slave? So circle that. You are that one slave. So there's two in verse 16. Then there's one in verse 17. There's one in verse 18. There's two more in verse 19. At the end of 19, you see slave of uncleanness and slaves of righteousness for holiness. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you want to circle that word there, verse 22. And having become slaves of God. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, if my math is correct, that the word slave is in this passage of Scripture. Now, again, I don't think you got to be the smartest person in the world to think, hmm, that must be an important word because... It's just used over and over and over and over. So what is that word? Sometimes it's translated servant, but the word is doulos. The word means bond servant. The word is slave. That's what the word is. And so it's important for you to understand that this slavery has a lot to do with your ability to understand what God, the clarity of what God's saying. There's been a change of ownership. So Paul is showing us some things about a person who is unsaved. Look at verse 17. But God be thanked that you were slaves of sin. So we know that we were something and we became something. But what were we? We were a slave of sin. You weren't a friend of sin. You weren't an acquaintance of sin. You were a slave of sin. That's what the Bible says. To all people who were unsaved slaves of sin. You say, well, I don't know. That's kind of radical. Paul's kind of getting out on a limb there. No, Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Remember that when he was arguing with the Pharisees? You see, if a lost person were not a... just, Just think, just delineate this out with me. If a lost person were not a slave to sin, then that would mean that they had the capacity, the potential, the the no matter how faint the possibility of reforming themselves. And if that were true, then they would have no need for a savior. So the reason that. A lost person's only hope is a savior is because they're a slave to sin. They're a slave to sin. They're, they're, there's, they have no control. They have no ability to overwhelm sin. Sin has overwhelmed them. That's why they need a savior. You see, if I'm drowning in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I am at the mercy of the Pacific Ocean. I I have no capacity to defeat the ocean. The ocean has overwhelmed me. I am at the mercy of... It makes me go up, it makes me go down, and it will eventually defeat me because I cannot defeat it. I need a savior, someone to come and save me. So at salvation, what happens? Jesus comes and sets us free from sin and death is what we say. We say Jesus comes and sets us free from sin. Now... Why is He setting us free from sin? Because we were slaves of sin. If we're slaves of sin, the only way to not be a slave of sin is you got to be set free from that, right? So Jesus comes and He breaks the chains that bind us to sin and He frees us from that sin. But what Paul is saying, and this is the problem, what so many people start losing in this is they think that when... Jesus breaks the chains to sin and frees us from that, that we go frolicking through the forest in our newfound freedom. The only problem is that's not what the Bible says. What does it say? It says you were a slave of sin, but you became freed or just run around and do whatever you want to do. No. No. You became something in particular. And what is it? You became slaves of righteousness. Oh, so what the Bible says is that we were slaves of sin. Jesus comes and breaks the chain that binds us to sin and sets us free from sin and then takes those same chains and binds us to himself making us a slave of righteousness. So the issue is we were not once a slave, but now we're free. We were once a slave to one thing and are now a slave to another. I don't think you're excited about that. See, I think that you want salvation to eliminate slavery. That's what your flesh wants. But that's not how this works. It gives you a new master. That's what salvation does. See, there's a change of ownership. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You don't know that? Well, let me help you with that. You were bought at a price. The price was the propitiation of His blood that we just sang about. That blood that we, we're so grateful for and so thankful for and we owe everything because of, that blood bought us at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. There is a change of ownership. You have always been a slave, and you will always be a slave. There will never be a moment that you will ever take a breath in this life and not be a slave. Do you understand that? From the moment you popped out of your mother's womb, you were a slave to sin. And you will remain that way until the day you die and go to hell unless God saves you, at which time you will no no longer be a slave to sin, but you will now be a slave to righteousness. But there is no such thing as non-slavery. There is no such thing as, well, I'm just going to run around and do whatever I want to do. This is why Paul is saying, how absurd is it for you to think that because we're not under law and we're under grace that I'll just run around and do whatever I want to do. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's impossible. Which is why we struggle in Galatians 5 when Paul comes along and says, here are the works of the flesh, there are this, 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 and this, and those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And we all go, well, what does that mean? Well, obviously it means that you cannot propagate these things in your life on a continual basis and be a slave of righteousness. Then anyone could figure out that's not gonna work. You're a slave. And trust me, the best news that you ever heard, the greatest thing that ever happened to you is if you became a slave of righteousness. Because there's no alternative to slavery. None. Our our man-made, man-centered preoccupation with fantasy freedom is utterly absurd and unbiblical. You can no more be saved and run around and do whatever you want to do than I can fly around this room right now like Superman. You can't. And if you can, the only thing it proves is that you're still a slave of sin. You see, whenever we sort of have to reckon ourselves to the plainness and the clarity of the gospel, what happens is we, something rears up inside of us and we think, hmm, that's just not fair. To which I say, ding, 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 now you're starting to get it. Fair, what you don't want is Fair. What you want to do is rejoice every day of your life. You want to wake up and say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for not being fair with me. Though what we never want is fair. I want grace. So this idea of trading in one slavery for another, it just, it doesn't really sound like a wind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how... How pathetic have things gotten to where we invest our time? Listen, it's not just me. I'm looking around this room. I mean, we've got Sunday school teachers in this room. Certainly you can identify with what I'm about to say. How much time and energy and effort Do we expend running around chasing people, trying to get them to do what God has commanded them to do? It's not that they don't know that God has commanded them to do it. It's just that they don't want to. And so you go and you have a conversation with them and you sit down with them and you open the Bible and you say, now, are you saved? And they say, yeah, I'm saved. And you say, okay, now here's what God said. And you read them what God said and you say, now, do you understand that? Yes, I understand that. Now, do you understand that God commanded you to not do this, but to do this? It's just, that there's no ambiguity there at all. Yes, I got that. OK. And then you turn around and they're right back doing the same thing again. And here we go. And you go back to me, say, now, was I not clear with you? Did you not get that? Was there something you did? not No, no, I understood it. But I just don't want to. I'm just not ready. I just don't feel like it. I just don't. I don't know. But here's the point. How? Wait. Time out. Wait a second. At what point do we say? Now, wait. I'm tired of chasing you around. Maybe you're a slave of sin. Because this does not seem to me like you're a slave of righteousness. And when we start convincing ourselves. That people are Christians. When we start. Mingling and muddling around in, in what the gospel says and sort of making excuses because we like them or we, 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 we hope the best for them or whatever the case may be. It doesn't change the reality. And I'm just simply saying, I'm just reading the Bible and I'm thinking, it's not looking good. Boy, I mean, Jesus' teaching on the narrow gate and the wide gate are really starting to come into focus, aren't they? I mean, there is a major big-time lordship issue. You know, when I got saved, I didn't just all of a sudden just, you know, at the flash of lightning... Start walking with God in every area of my life. I didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't know anything. But here's the thing: nobody was chasing after me. Nobody had to tell me, Tony. You, you, you don't. You don't need to be doing that. You need to be doing that. Nobody. You know what? All I would do was read the Bible and then do what it said. And then I'd read the Bible again and then I'd do what it said. i read the Bible and I'd do what it said. I mean, that's all I did. I didn't, I didn't need anybody to bark at me or chase me or scold me or slap my hand. I just did what God said. And every time that I heard a sermon, every time that I read my Bible, it was always something new because everything was new to me. And I would just listen to what it said. And when God would reveal something to me and I would go, OK, that's what. I, and then I would just do it. And there was a lot of things that I was doing wrong and a lot of things. But it wasn't because I was willfully disobeying God. It was because I didn't know what the right thing was to do. But as I saw what the right thing to do was, I just started doing it. And some days I just think. What happened? Why? Are we chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing? On and on and on. What happened to God said? Yes, sir. It doesn't matter if I understand it. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't. It really doesn't matter. God said it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're the master. It's funny, we didn't have any. We didn't we didn't have any qualms about God's leadership capacity or his leadership style, or we didn't have any problems with anything he said when. We supposedly. Made this. Decision to follow him, in other words, when it comes to I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness, So whatever it takes, God, for you to forgive all my sin, well, sign me up for that. But once my sin's forgiven, then we know we're going to have to negotiate on everything after that. Ridiculous. You know, one of the great joys of my life is that I have in my possession all the recorded messages that my father-in-law ever preached. And so sometimes, you know, if I'm having a bad day or if I'm, you know, just I just I just need some encouragement. I get out one of the old cassette tapes and I'll just pluck one out of the I mean, I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all cataloged. And so I'll get one of those tapes out and I'll put it in my tape player. And yes, I have a tape player for that very reason. And I'll turn that scratchy little tape on and I'll listen to him preach. And I always smile. Because I always think. Here is a person. Who just got the simplicity. Of the gospel. I mean, if ever there was ever anyone who didn't overcomplicate the gospel, it was my father-in-law. And I was listening to him preach the other day and he used this quote. He said that he said, when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples were scared and the storm blew up, he said, Jesus got up and he rebuked the storm. And when he rebuked the storm, the storm went still. And he said, undoubtedly, there were lots of other ships on the sea that day. And when he rebuked the storm, it wasn't just the lordship that was settled, but all the ships on the sea were settled. And he said, you see, when you get lordship settled, you settle all the other ships. Stewardship, discipleship, fellowship, worship. You see that's the simplicity of the gospel. When you get lordship right, all the other ships Get settled. So there's a change of ownership. And then secondly, there's a change of obedience. I didn't really have to have a second point. I mean, I think right now we could just have an invitation and be done. But I'm just going to drive the nail a little further. How about that? There's a change of obedience. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. In other words, Paul says that the revelation of who owns you, like if you, I mean, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, let's suppose that you're uncertain whether a person is a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. How would you discern that? He says, do you not know? As if, duh, everybody knows this. Whomever you present yourself slaves to obey, to that one you're a slave. So if you obey sin, I don't know if we can figure this out. It may be too complicated. This is just going to blow our evangelism to pieces. Everyone is going to hate all of you now. You don't want to start telling people the truth now, do you? If you obey sin, the Bible says you are a slave of sin. If you obey righteousness, you are a slave of righteousness. That's it. But if you're saved, there's a change of ownership and there's a change of obedience. Are you sure? I don't know. Let's ask Jesus. Let's go back to John chapter 8. He's arguing with the Pharisees. And they say to him in verse 39. But Abraham is our father. We can't be slaves of unrighteousness. We can't be born into sin. Abraham is our father. We signed a card. We joined a church. We went to camp. We're part of the club. We got t-shirts. I mean, come on. You can't. Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, hmm. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, oh no, if I want to know who you're a slave of, all I got to do is look at who you obey. But now you seek to kill me, Jesus said. A man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. I mean, Jesus just has a way of... He says... You do the deeds of your father. Now, see, I'm I'm just trying to tell you, Paul said it a whole lot nicer. There it is right there. Verse 17 says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Do you ever notice how that's worded? I mean, before we say goodbye to this passage tonight, shouldn't we just look at this for a second and think, now that's strange. Shouldn't it say to which was delivered to you? I mean, look at your Bible. You tell me. Wouldn't it make more sense if Paul said, well, you obeyed the doctrine that was delivered to you? That would make sense, but that's not what it says. It says you Obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Again, I'm just third grade uh, grammar here, folks. This is saying something different than what I delivered to you. It's you were delivered unto it. Paul is saying that. This form of doctrine, that word form, it's the word that that like we use for form, like we would form in a foundation. It sets the boundaries and the parameters of of what's about to hold up everything that goes on top of it. And so this this form of doctrine that Paul's referring to, the gospel, to which... You were delivered. So you were a slave of sin, but then you were delivered to this form of doctrine that sh- unshackled you from sin and reshackled you to righteousness. You see, the, the gospel... The truth. It's not delivered to you. It delivers you. It is the delivery agent. It is the mechanism that makes delivery possible. That without this form of doctrine, there is no hope of being delivered. It's it's not the messenger that brings it. It's what the messenger brings that has the power. So there's a change of ownership and a change of obedience. And all we have left to do, because probably right now in this room, what I'm looking at is a whole bunch of faces looking out at me. That are on one hand. Joyful and thankful for the truth that we've heard tonight. But on another hand. The vast majority of you. Are troubled in your heart right now. Because the reality of the discussion we've just had. Is drawing people that you care deeply about to the forefront of your mind. But let me just encourage you tonight. Stop. Stop. Stop doing what you've always done. Don't just endure the next few minutes and get out of here and push what's been said out of your mind and go back to living in la-la land. I don't want you to have a broken heart, but I'd rather you have a broken heart than be deceived. Many... Many, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. But that's for a later date. That's for a discussion that you'll have with them somewhere else down the line. The only thing I have right now is a discussion with you. So between me and you, here's how this ends. My question for you is. Is there any area of your life right now, tonight, that you are knowingly and willingly walking in disobedience in? Is there any area in your life that God has been dealing with you? You know that he has spoken to you. You know what he would command you to do as your master. And you are Rejecting his authority. I'm not asking you if you're perfect. I'm simply asking you have you fallen into the trap of believing that God speaks to us for our consideration? If He is an all-knowing and all-powerful God, which He is, then wouldn't it make sense to you tonight that He speaks to you already knowing before He speaks whether or not you're going to Respond, or how long it's going to take you to respond or when you're going to respond or if ever you're going to respond. He already knows that. And so here's my question. If he's spoken to you about some area of your life and you have rejected his authority, then maybe that would explain why it's been a very long time since you've heard his voice. Because until you respond to what He's already said, He will say no more. Because He does not speak for our consideration. His perfect and holy word is not for you and me to decide. We're slaves of righteousness. The only question I need to know, is that my master's voice? And if the answer is yes then obedience is the only response. And to do otherwise is to put yourself in great peril. So is there anything tonight, anything in your life that you know God's speaking to you about and you are willfully walking in disobedience? Be very careful about Whom you obey. Because you're a slave. To the one you obey. Let's stand and bow our heads. Father we're grateful. And we're thankful. Not because. You tell us what we want to hear. Not because. You. Caress us at all times. You. Comfort us at all times. Lord, we're grateful and thankful. Because you do what is always best for us at all times. So Father, you have been very clear to us tonight. And Father, I'm very grateful that you have chosen to speak to us. You didn't have to. That you've chosen to. And so Lord. It is now incumbent upon each and every one of us. To respond. To what you have said. Help us Lord to take heed. Of whom we obey. Father I pray that in the. Days and weeks and months to come. That as this is processed out in our own personal lives, in our own standing before You, that, God, it will greatly impact the conversations that we have with those we love. That we will not say what we hope to be true. We won't say what we want people to think is true. But, Lord God, we will speak that which is true in love. Father, help us to just open our Bibles... And not talk for you, but let you talk for yourself. Father God, the greatest blessing in this world we could ever know, ever, is salvation. And Lord, you know that my greatest desire is that those whom I preach to day in and day out, week in and week out, That they would not be deceived. Father God, I want to stand before you with no blood on my hands. And so Lord, help us to respond rightly to all that you've said in our lives. And we know already that when we do, you get the glory. In Jesus' name.